Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Alan Kyler discusses his book, Marian Anderson, A Singer's Journey, a look at the life of the world-renowned singer who became a symbol of the civil rights movement. Alan Kyler, author of Marian Anderson, A Singer's Journey. If you were to see a Marian Anderson concert when she was at the peak of her skills, her musical abilities and her fame, what concert would you have seen and when and where? Oh, I think I would have seen any concert she gave in the 30s and 40s. I don't think it would matter very much where it was. Um, uh, one would have had the same impression of her extraordinary singing, technically, of course, and interpretively. I don't think I would have chosen a particular place, <laughs> a particular auditorium. I did hear her, not in her prime. Uh, I heard her in the last years of her life. And although technically she had not sung as well before, it was irrelevant to, to everybody who was there. So strong was her musical instinct, and so, so strong was her musical personality. Where was that concert? The first time was in Ann Arbor. It was actually the penultimate concert of her farewell tour. That would have been 1965. And before that, a few years, I think, in Detroit. What did she sing? She sang a typical program, usually followed the same sort of order. Um, some Handel or old Italian songs at the start, usually German leader, Schubert, Schumann. Um, and then in the second half, American songs, and of course, always at the end, a group of spirituals. Accompanied by what? Accompanied by Franz Rupp, her pianist and accompanist for a quarter of a century, almost from the time of the Lincoln Memorial Concert to the end of her career, the same accompanist. What was she like on stage? What kind of stage presence did she have? What did she wear? Well, she was beautifully gowned, but I don't know as I was the best person to tell you about that sort of thing. Uh, it's her presence, the anticipation I felt. Um, the anticipation before she came on was really extraordinary. Uh, I've never felt that way about, uh, uh, about any other artist that I ever saw. And she was rather regal, dignified, slightly distant. Um, and then everything changed miraculously when she began to sing. It's hard, it's hard to capture the, the, her presence on the stage because it was different from anybody I, uh, uh, um, I had ever heard, especially singers. Uh, there was a strange contradiction about her. In, in some ways, you, could, you focused on her uh, profoundly. And in, this, in another way, the minute she sang, you were unaware of her, but only about what she was trying to convey musically. Why'd you write the book? Well, for a lot of reasons, but I think the most important was is that since I can remember, I was angry and frustrated about the fact that although everybody acknowledged that she was one of the supremely great singers of the 20th century, I never felt that people really understood what that, what, what that entailed. Uh, I don't think that they, I felt she, I didn't they didn't understand what really constituted her grace as a singer. In some cases, it seemed it was 
simply politically correct to say that Marian Anderson was a great singer, but they had so little knowledge of what I thought was important about her singing, so, and I was mad about it, I was angry about it. In many ways, I think I may have identified with her. She was also angry and frustrated about the fact that people knew about the Lincoln Memorial Concert, but they had no idea, or very little idea, about her artistic career, which was, of course, central to her, to her life. What did you know about her before you started researching the book? I knew virtually everything that had ever been written about her. <laughs> I was a fan. fan. I was a fan um, from a very early age. Uh, but most of what was written about her was promotional material. And so it was repetitious and sort of pared down and simplified to, to make that kind of direct appeal to audiences. No nuance, no perspective, not enough, no detail. And that seemed to go on more and more through the years. The same material, um, one could exhaust what one knew about Marian Anderson in a very short time in terms of what was written. When you sat down and you decided, okay, I'm going to write this book about Marian Anderson, how did you start? Well, when I took myself seriously, I had thought about this for years, this kind of fantasy that I wanted to do this. And many people felt that. Many people felt they wanted nothing more than to be Mary Anderson defender, Mary Anderson spokesman, spokesperson. I felt like that for years, but at some point I took it seriously. I think one reason I took it seriously because I had realized that although she was still living, she was very old, and if I wanted her somehow to participate in this, I'd better do something. She was 89. I thought she was 89 at the time. It turned out that as I began to work, she was not 89. She was really 95. That was even more scary. Uh, and so I wrote to her, to her nephew, James the Priest, who's conductor of the Oregon Symphony Orchestra, a very prominent and important conductor. I think I knew that I needed to write to him and to have his permission and the family's permission and encouragement if this was to happen. And I wrote to him and got an answer extraordinarily fast, before I would expect it to have, who said, yes, I, I sent him some material. And he wrote back and said, you are the sort of person that we would like to write this biography. It was a bit surprising that it happened so fast and that he was so encouraging from the very start. But that was Jimmy and that was the whole family. Um, they gave me every support possible from the very start. How did you proceed? Well then, I think the next stage was to be connected to the University of Pennsylvania, where Mary Anderson's papers are. She gave her papers in a series of gifts to the university first in 1977, and then again toward the end of her life in 1989, 1990. This is an enormous collection of material. All of her music is there. Uh, letters, diaries, itineraries, um, and also a tremendous number of recordings, home recordings, that she made herself in the studio while rehearsing with Franz Rupp. Test pressings that nobody else had or thought were destroyed from every aspect of her life, public, private, musical, it took years to work in that collection. And unfortunately, although I'll explain later, fortunately, a good part of that collection was no longer, was not yet cataloged. It was in hundreds of boxes, disorganized. Letters were separated from envelopes. Material that belonged in one year was spread over boxes. And so I had to do this box by box, document by document. Uh, How long it, did it take? Years. Years. <laughs> Three years, four years. Um, and it didn't seem at the time that, in fact, it would be catalogued. 
it was a very precarious kind of way of doing research. If something is cataloged, the catalog is published, you can always uh, gain access to material again, a second, a third time, if you change your mind. I had to make a decision on the spot, pretty much, if this, if this was going to be important. And if it was, should I take notes about it? Should I have it copied? Because it once and went back into those boxes. It was very unlikely I was going to be able to find it again. I didn't have the time to make a catalog of tens of thousands of pages. How often did you dig something out and go, wow? Most of the time. <laughs> Most of the time. Because it was all so new. You know, there was not a single letter sent to or written by Marian Anderson ever published. That's how little there was in the literature about Marian Anderson from the point of view of scholarship or academic work. Nothing, not a single letter in print. Later, however, I discovered that it was an ideal way, in a way, to do research. I wouldn't recommend it to other scholars. It's a difference between looking at a book with a list of categories about where documents are and going through someone's drawers, <laughs> someone's boxes of papers, someone's files. It's haphazard. You don't know what to expect. And so it makes you much more attentive, much more alert, much more excited. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about being in Marian Anderson's house, as it were, and just going through things that she had kept for years, put some things here, some things there, forgotten where, and you were looking at that stuff. You made connections, you made hypotheses. I mean, you had to because this stuff was going to disappear in boxes that you might never see again. You also did a lot of interviews. You have a list in the back of people you Yes, and I think after the material in pen, the, the Mary Anderson papers, the next most important area was oral research, which I had never, never really done before. She was a very old woman by the time I began, and yet there were a surprising number of people still living who knew her from a very early age. Uh, so over the years, I interviewed hundreds of people and spent hundreds of hours, and it's a kind of gradual process. You have a list of people at the start, you have a list of questions at the start, but it mushrooms. It's the way you find out things and so in life, in a way. People, you talk to someone and they recommend someone else or mention someone else. And then you go to that person and that continues to flourish that way. Do you have a couple of favorite interviews of people you learned the most from? I, I don't think there's one that wasn't in a way favorite, a favorite interview, but that's not what you want to hear. You want to hear some specific things. I just want to say that every interview I did was enormously interesting and important. But I think I would mention, well, of course, there's the family, which I don't think of as interviews. They were friends from the very beginning. They were my family. <laughs> if I needed something, I would call Jimmy or Sandy Grimes, Marion's cousin. I'm stuck. What do I do? Do you know how to help me here? They would get busy. <laughs> that was, I, it never seemed to me interviewing. Um, but otherwise, I would mention, well, I think Lillian Bass comes to mind first, especially since she's not here anymore. She died last year at the age of 95. She was the oldest Anderson after Marian Anderson. She was Marian Anderson's first cousin. She was a wonderful lady, warm, very generous. She had an extraordinary memory of events and dates. There were times when I was absolutely certain she was wrong and found out that she wasn't. She liked to talk about her family, as most people who are on in years like to talk. And here was the perfect audience for her. In a way, I wanted to know everything there was to know about her past, the Andersons, growing up in South Philadelphia. And I had 
oh, 15 or 20 interviews with her over the course of, well, starting in 1993 when I began until she died. I only talked to her a few months before she died. And you interviewed Marian Anderson also? Yes, I interviewed, and that didn't seem like an interview either. Maybe perhaps you wanted you want to hear something about that. I came to, uh, uh, to Portland. Miss Anderson was living in Portland uh, with her nephew and niece, James DePriest, and his wife, Jeanette. She had lived in Danbury for half a century, but she was really quite old then, and the family wanted her to be there, to be with them. And so she came to live with, her, um, to, with Jimmy, uh, I think in August, and I was invited to come and talk with her in December. And there were two days set aside. I had asked for two days. The first day, which was Friday, uh, came to the house. Well, I was very excited because I was take, taken into Jimmy's office and we worked together for a while, but, and yet I knew that she was around somewhere in, 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 you, one, in one of those rooms. Had you ever met her up to that point? No. I, went, I heard her, but I never met her. Um, and then I was informed that I wasn't really going, I wasn't going to see Miss Anderson until the next day. That, that on Friday we were going to work together, Jimmy and I, and on Saturday Miss Anderson would join us and we would work together. I was very disappointed. I bought her a present. Um, needless to say, wanted to see Marian Anderson. And after working for an hour or two, Jimmy said, well, is Aunt Marian up? She had her breakfast. I think Jeanette went to see how she was. And then Jimmy got up and left, went into it. And then Wilhelmina was looking after nurse uh, was looking after Mary and came and said, come on in. And, and so I went into Miss Anderson's bedroom. This is very impromptu. It was not, it was not um, arranged at all. I think Jimmy, he must have seen that I was a little disappointed and very anxious to meet her. He was sitting there, and so I came in. And she was sitting up in a kind of chaise long. There were newspapers in her lap. And I never forget the first thing that happened. It's very indicative of what Marianne was like as a person. I went up to her naturally to shake her hand and she put both hands out to me exactly like this. It was very spontaneous. It was very moving. It meant something. And so I sat in the room with her. She was this close. An hour or so talking about things that I was interested in. That didn't seem like an interview. It seemed like a visit. Thanks to Jimmy, thanks to the kind of person Miss Anderson was. What did you ask her? What is the question you were dying to ask her? Well, I don't remember the order of things. I remember asking her, I remember being fascinated about her grandfather, who had the same religion as me, Jewish. Her grandfather, Benjamin Anderson, was a black Jew. She didn't write much about that in her autobiography, but of course it fascinated me. What sort of sect was it? Did you go to the synagogue with him, for example, on Saturday? Did he take you? Things like that. Um, we also talked about Isabella, Marion's grandmother, woman of imposing character in her life, with whom, of course, Marion and her sisters and Mrs. Anderson lived for a long time. I had nothing. I had questions planned, but I, that was not the day to talk to you to, to be systematic. It was a day to, to just have a conversation about things that came to mind. And so most of it was about family, the grandparents, um, especially Benjamin, um, the neighborhoods, Union Baptist Church, what she sang in the choir, things like that. Is there anything she said that really stuck with you that you can still 
hear her say? Yes, I do remember one thing. It was very funny. She had a wonderful sense of humor. Um, she knew she was being funny, and she showed it in a very, in a very subtle sort of way. Uh, I remember the kind of look she had when she was about to say something. Um, I asked her, the first time, I asked her when the first time it was that Roland Hayes, a very important black singer, in a way her mentor, had heard her sing. And she thought for a minute and she said, she didn't remember, but he could have heard her any time because she would have sung at the drop of a hat. <laughs> you said you thought she was 89 when you interviewed her, but she was really 94 or 95. What's That's the story right. There? Well, her official biography in the books, in the, in the, in the, um, in the um, in dictionaries, biographical dictionaries. Her official biography was, her official birthday was 1903, February 27th, 1903. And she had taken that birthday herself from a very early age, from the time she left high school. She signed a driver's license, permit, February 23rd, uh, February 27th, 1903. So I assumed that she was 89. But there was talk that that was not her real age. You know, why should it be? She was a woman. Um, these are the things people do. There was some suspicion that she was older. And there, was ver there were various hypotheses about how old she really was. So I went down to the, I think, city hall at the time and asked to have a copy of her birth certificate. It's very simple to find out these things. And it was turned out that she was born in 1897. That made her a lot older than I had thought, which was uh, quite extraordinary considering how lucid and intelligent and serious she was about trying to help. And that's the other thing I remember, especially the second day when we spent several hours in Jimmy's study, how determined and how, how serious she was about trying to be helpful to me, not to mislead me, to be accurate about what I asked. Sometimes she would think carefully before she answered me. Um, and told us stories that even Jimmy was surprised about, things that he didn't know. I asked her about her teacher, Giuseppe Bugetti, who was the first white teacher she had, an important teacher, the um, first white teacher who would take her as a student in South Philadelphia. And I asked her about Giuseppe Bugetti, and she said, oh, his name is Joe Bogash. Jimmy said, what? <laughs> he had taken Giuseppe Bogetti. I mean. Oh, his real name was Real Joe name Bogash. was Joe Bogash. He was a Russian Jew. Had a, Wanted to have a career as a tenor, I think. Studied in, in Italy, in Milan, didn't do so well, and came back, Giuseppe Bugetti. Opened up a vocal studio in Philadelphia and in New York. Now, there are people watching this program right now who do not know anything about Marian Anderson, have mm -hmm. never heard of her. Mm -hmm. To those people, how do you say something that gets them interested in her? Listen to her sing. Listen to what? Listen to anything. Any kind of music you're interested in. If, you, if it's spirituals that attract you, listen to her sing some spirituals. If it's more popular kinds of songs, if it's Christmas carol she recorded, if it's Schubert Lieder, if it's opera, listen to her sing. That's the first thing I would say. That's the first thing she would want me to say. Can you recommend a particular recording? Can I mention labels? Say anything and, you want, say anything you want. Well, I think there is one tremendously good CD that has come out recently. 
People have not always been careful enough about re-releasing her CDs and remastering them, but there's one on a label called VAI, which is a small label, but which was done with tremendous care uh, with the help of University of Pennsylvania, who owned some of the recordings, and BMG, who lent some of them. I think that's the most representative CD. A huge variety of material. Um, you see the whole gamut of the kinds of music that Ms. Anderson sang. Encore type pieces, Will of the Wisp, or the Cuckoo, which are very funny. Serious songs, the four serious songs of Brahms. Um, songs in French. I would recommend that. Or the new CD that's just come out from BMG, which I hope is the first and or second in the series of a great many more, in which includes almost all of the music of Schubert and Schumann, which were composers that were very close to her, uh, that she ever recorded. That's a very important CD. Were her concerts always just solo recitals with her and a piano, or did she sing with orchestras and choruses and Mo do opera? No, well, most of her concerts were recitals with a pianist. She sang with symphony orchestras when she was invited. It was not as often as it ought to have been. There are symphony orchestras in this country who never invited her for all of her fame. Uh, she was never asked, for example, to participate in performances with a symphony orchestra in which there would be more than one soloist on the stage. So there's no Messiah, no Verdi Requiem. She never sang in those. Why Seems not? to be the same, for the same reason that she wasn't allowed to sing in the Metropolitan Opera, because she was black. She did finally in 1955. She was invited. It's the first black singer to make her debut at the Metropolitan Opera. But she was nearly 60 years old. Um, it was her only chance. It was, a, it was the only time she sang an opera. And she sang only nine performances of a single role. Uh, Ulrika, Verdi's mask ball, before her career in opera ended. <laughs> now, she grew up in Philadelphia. She was born in Philadelphia. Where? South Philadelphia, Webster Street. Is the house still there? Street. The house is still there. If you walk down Webster Street till the end, it's blockaded off. The second house from the end on the right, her parents rented the room on the second floor on Webster Street. Is it a residence now, or is it a... I think it's a, a residence, yes. Oh. It's a very, very tiny, narrow street, the kind that you find in South Philadelphia very often. Did you go there and look at it? Yes, of course I went there. <laughs> Walked up and down the street. At but then she moved to an, in a, a number of times, as many black families did. Always in the same general area in South Philadelphia. Where'd she go to school? She went to the Stanton School, secondary school, which in the neighborhood. And then she went um, to eventually... Uh, the South Philadelphia High School for Girls, where she graduated in 1921. At what point in her life did people start saying, well, she, you know, she has a pretty good voice? Well, the first sentence in the book says, remember, it quotes, come and hear the baby contralto, 10 years old. Okay, so 10 years old. From a very young age, she sang in the junior chorus in Union Baptist Church from the time she was six. So by the time she was 10, she was really well known in the South Philadelphia neighborhood. She was a child, uh, 10 years old, who had this extraordinary low voice, contralto, but, who, but a voice that could extend up to soprano range when necessary, um, when she wanted, when, uh, when called upon. I think she was already in the neighborhood, famous by the age of 10. <laughs> and she was singing with a chorus and they they took a collection up to gather money for her Many to, people did. to uh, take yes, lessons. for her lessons, for her education. She sang not only Union Baptist Church, which raised money for her a number of times, 
She also sang with the People's Chorus, a, um, a non-professional black choral group in South Philadelphia. It was very important. She sang with the People's Chorus since she was a young girl, teenager. They also helped to raise money for her. The, uh, the very entrepreneurial um, uh, editor of the Philadelphia Tribune, G. Grant Williams, helped to raise money for her. In other words, as she became more well-known, and it became clear that her family was poor, that she couldn't continue on to high school, that she could, didn't have lessons, money for lessons, the Philadelphia community, South Philadelphia community especially, black, white and black together, took it as their task, as their mission, not task, of course, not task, took it as their mission to do something for, as the members of the congregation in Union Baptist Church, church said, our Marion. She was their Marion. Her mother worked at Wanamaker's. Yes, she worked at Wanamaker's. And her father? Father died when she was only 13. Her father had an ice and coal business, worked at the Reading Terminal, also apparently sold liquor. Marion didn't like to admit that. Uh, and probably found a number of jobs in the neighborhood to make a living. I, th I don't think we know the struggles to the degree that one ought to about how John Berkeley supported his family, perhaps as a laborer when those jobs were available. His name was John Berkeley? John Berkeley Anderson. John Berkeley Anderson. Uh, what was, was there one concert that was uh, her first major concert where people started to sit up and take notice outside of her circle? It was very gradual. It, she was at the start an assisting artist where she would appear on concerts with other black artists. Uh, gradually she would sing recitals of her own. One important concert took place in 19, I think 25, when she won the Lewis and Stadium contest. A uh, uh, big competition in New York. 300 applicants, vocal applicants, um, entered the contest. And Marion won the contest even before the third round uh, was decided on. That was a big concert with the, uh, in Lewiston Stadium um, in New York. I think that was important. It's hard to say one particular concert in those early years. You know, I think in 1918 she sang in the South for the first time at a festival in Savannah, uh, which was important for her, of course, for the first time to sing in, in the South. Her parents on both sides were from the South. Her parents were from Virginia. Um, this is the first time she traveled. I think she traveled with her mother to the South uh, to sing. So it's hard to say what the first, um, it was really a very incremental and gradual process. Um, um, but at the start, it was limited and, con and constrained in the typical ways it had to have been for black singers, black colleges, universities in the South. Were her uh, audiences ever integrated? Black, yes, in the North they were integrated. In the South, generally in those years in the 20s, they were segregated. There may be, or if that wasn't possible, a concert would repeat it for black audiences um, or for white audiences. Uh, on the other hand, in places like uh, Boston, Chicago, uh, in Town Hall, for example, in 1924, those were integrated audiences. Who arranged her concert schedule? Well, for a while, she and Billy King, her accompanist, were their own managers printed up cards, 
wrote to auspices in the South. It was a very difficult business. They had, uh, for a time, a manager in Harlem uh, interested in her. For, uh, for a couple of years, G. Grant, G. Grant Williams, the Tribune editor, acted as her manager. Uh, it was very difficult. It was a struggle. Uh, until a year or two before the Depression, when a very important American manager, Arthur Judson, decided to manage her. It was the first time he had managed a black singer. He also managed the Philadelphia Orchestra? Philadelphia Orchestra and the New York Philharmonic, and many, many instrumentalists and singers. He was probably, in many ways, the most powerful manager in, in the country. Did she sing for those orchestras then? No. She didn't. In fact, Sokovsky wanted desperately for her to sing with the Philadelphia Orchestra. And from all the evidence, Judson prevented it. Maybe he thought she wasn't ready to sing with the Philadelphia Orchestra. Maybe he thought the Philadelphia wasn't ready for her as a black singer. But she never sang with them, no. Did, Not then. Did music critics write about her performances back then in the 20s? Oh, yes. What'd they say? The reviews in that resulted from black auspices were extraordinary. All of them attested to her enormous ability, extraordinary ability, technically as well as interpretively. When she sang for more cosmopolitan audiences, perhaps in, in, in Chicago and so on, critics tended to be a little, this is understandable, um, when she sang for her own people. The critics' response was invariably going to be different than it was from those music critics who took what they thought was a more serious and objective approach to her singing. And in that case, the reviewers would point out, apart from the fact that she had enormous talent and ability, her German wasn't very good. She obviously didn't understand much of what she was singing in that language. Um, she ought to study more. There was a certain reticence, lack of emotional development to her singing. Part of it was natural for a young woman. How old would she have been then? In her 20s, later 20s. Part of it was the fact that she needed study in Europe. And she went to Europe in 1928? And then she went to Europe in 1928 for the first Who time. Who arranged that? She did. With a lot of friends' help, a lot of suggestions. Um, she had many letters of recommendation, invitation. A number of black uh, singers and other performers had gone to London throughout that decade to find work. Things were easier in many ways for black performers then. She was encouraged by a number of people uh, to go to London, where she would have friends who welcomed her, who helped her. And so she went uh, on her own. And performed? And, and, no, she didn't perform much. She went to study. She performed in all of that year twice in public. She made a debut at, the, at Wigmore Hall, which was successful, and then she sang once at the proms, the, the London proms, big concert series in the summer. But I think from her point of view, she was there as a student. She wanted to study languages, which she did. She studied, she wanted to, she wanted to get closer to the tradition of German leader. I think she was perfectly content. Leader meaning songs. Songs, German songs of composers like Schubert, Schumann, Strauss, and so on, which is the repertoire from the very beginning that she felt closest to. I think she felt herself to be a student. 
um, and worked very hard. She lived in the home of John Payne, who was himself a singer who had come earlier in the decade, and who had a beautiful house in Regent's Park, uh, square, I think, and um, who opened his house to many black performers who were working and studying um, in London. The Robesons came for a time during that year and heard her. Um, who was Paul Robeson? Paul Robeson was uh, an extraordinary singer, actor, political activist, um, who at that time was having a great success doing Othello and singing whole concerts of spirituals. Was he living in Europe at the time? No, he was living in New York at the time, but it had already had and was having a tremendous success in Europe and certainly in London. So Paul Rob did she and Paul Robeson find more acceptance in classical music uh, followers in Europe than in the United well, States? Well, they found more acceptance of black singers in Europe, uh, as the Roland Hayes did before. Um, and yes, um, it was unusual for black singers to perform the kind of concert music that Marian Anderson sang. Um, but they were successful. I, mean, I think that they had to earn their right to sing the repertoire, uh, to sing that repertoire. Uh, but it didn't take long for Marian Anderson to earn that right. <laughs> you uh, quote a critic when she went to Vienna a few yes. years later. The critics were more than kind to Anderson. They were also aware of what had been done to Viennese concert life. One writer remarked in amazement, what would Brahms have said if it could have been known that his rhapsody would be sung by a negress? That's right. That was, a, that was an important event. Uh, that was when she sang, that was in 1936, I believe, when she was invited to sing by Bruno Walter, a very important German conductor, to sing with the Vienna Symphony during the, was, uh, this Vienna Festival Week. 1936, remember, was not an easy time for Jews in Europe. Um, um, and she was not, she was asked to perform not arias, but she was asked to perform the Alto Rhapsody of Brahms, which is a work for chorus, chorus, and soloist uh, in Vienna. <laughs> um, Pretty demanding. It was place extraordinary. For music for anybody. It was the idea that Marian Anderson, a black woman, would stand on the stage of, of the theater in Vienna, I forget which, with the Vienna, Viennese musicians, with the chorus. Um, with a conductor who was, uh, who had to leave Germany um, as a Jew uh, to sing this piece by Brahms to a text by Goethe, the national poet of Germany. <laughs> and she also toured Russia and Germany in the years just before the war broke out. Yeah, she toured all over Europe, virtually all over Europe. Uh, France, Germany, Italy, Scandinavia. Scandinavia was, well, she had enormous successes at the start. Uh, the picture in the top oh, is, a, is top. an interesting one because when she was in Russia, you don't see her, you see the audience listening to her and on the very left is Stanislavski, the great theater director. You can see the expression on his face. And they're watching her they're sing. watching her sing, hearing her sing. And this picture down below is from a concert in First Moscow. concert in Moscow, 19... Uh, 35. Did she tailor her concerts any different for a European audience? No, she didn't. 
and there were occasions when she ought to have, or she was told to. In Russia, for example, when she sang there, she was told not to sing spirituals, especially spirituals that have very open, frank, um, religious message. Uh, that would not do her, that, that she had better not do it. In fact, I, I, I think I wrote about that at the time, that although Paul Robson was a hero in the Soviet Union, nonetheless, a radio station had broadcast a recording of his, uh, of the Negro spiritual, and they were really heads rolled as a result of it. Uh, but she was determined to sing Negro spiritual. She sang them in every program. Um, and of course, that was the music, more than any other music in some ways, that the Russian audiences responded to. That music was about their own privations, their own struggles. Anything distinctive about her trip to Germany? It just it was under well, she Hitler could, at the time. she couldn't sing in Germany after she was a student. After she she sang in Germany, she was a student in Berlin in the second half of 1930, and the second half of 1931. That was the last time she sang in Germany until the war was over. There was a time in 1935, I think, when for for, for because of some bureaucratic stupidity, her manager. Look, was looking for a date for her to sing in Germany when she was singing, perhaps in Prague, I don't remember. And they asked the manager whether she was Aryan or not. Uh, manager said she wasn't, and that was the last they ever heard of it. Um, so she didn't sing in Germany until 1949 or 50. But she was still allowed to sing in Austria. That was possible. So she sang, and so she sang in Salzburg. And in Vienna in 36 and in 37, and then that was the end of Germany in, in the German-speaking world. I want to ask you about a gentleman by the name of Orpheus Fisher. Orpheus Fisher. They knew each other when they were young, and he proposed marriage to her. And you had in here a, a note that he wrote to her where he wrote, Marion, I sure do miss you terrible. He wrote to her when she was on tour. And when you return, I will have to ask you if our laundry can be sent to the laundry in the same basket. I hope that this little phrase is not too deep for you, dear. Interesting way to propose marriage. Yes, it is. Not a very a strange way to propose marriage. What'd she say? No. Why? She wasn't interested in marriage. She wanted a career that was too important. But she was single-minded of purpose about what was important to her in life then, and it wasn't marriage. But they did oh. get married later. Yes, but it took a long time. Photo. She was in her 40s? or She was 46 years old when they married. Who was he? He was an architect. Um, studied in Philadelphia. Came from a large family. Um, he was a creative man, professionally. Uh, he was charming. Um, enjoyed the company of women and pursued Marion on and off since they were in high school. What kind of marriage did they have? Oh, I think like any marriage, it had its ups and downs. She was away a lot? She was away, yes. She was away a lot. It was difficult for Orpheus. They lived on a beautiful farm in Danbury, Connecticut. Um, she was away a lot of the time. Orpheus was unhappy about that. He wanted her to be more oh, domesticated and more and, and around more. It provide. I'm sure that it. I have no doubt that our letters and so on uh, that make it perfectly clear that that was one of the difficulties of their marriage throughout most of it. Um, 
but Marion was as determined after marriage as she had been before to pursue what was most important. Um, um, and she did. What was she like as a person at the time? I mean, was she shy or outgoing? Or, can you describe that? She's, I think I would say she, was, she seemed shy. Many people who I interviewed said that she was enorm, enormously shy, that she would look down, not look at them directly easily. I think she was in some ways shy. She was a bit diffident. Um, she in some ways lacked confidence. Um, certainly not aggressive. But she, I think it took time for her to get to know you and to trust you. When I think people found her much different, warm, hum, full, of, full of fun. Um, um, that gesture, which I told you before, indicates something of what she was like. But there was a kind of distance that many people found to be true about her, a kind of guardedness, a need to, to protect herself from hurt that she had learned from a very early age, as anyone from her background and experience would have learned. And I think many people saw that. Was many she... people also saw that she did not talk about private and personal things very easily, virtually to anyone. Was she outspoken on anything? Was she interviewed much? In no, she was never country? outspoken. <laughs> she was, on, on, the, uh, on the contrary, she was sometimes maddeningly indirect <laughs> uh, about anything that might be called sensitive, civil rights, but uh, she had to criticize. It was not her way. She's um, not political? No, she wasn't political in the sense that she, well, she certainly wasn't like Paul Robeson, outspoken. Um, um, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to be accurate about how I would characterize her. Alice, that was Anderson's, that was Marian Anderson's um, middle, uh, um, middle of the th of three sisters. I would say that Alice was much more politically active and outspoken. She was much more interested in politics. Uh, she, in fact, she had made, she had had quite a career in, especially for a black woman in democratic state politics. I don't think that was Marian Anderson's way, um, to be involved intellectually with issues. She, she lived by a kind of simple yet powerful philosophy, spiritual, humane, was she which transcended, I think, for her, party politics, let's say. Was she religious? Yeah, she was very religious. She didn't go to church all the time, but she had a kind of deep spirituality about, uh, um, about how one lives in this world as a human being. You mentioned at the start of this interview the, the DAR Constitution Hall yes. incident. And for people who don't know about that, can you tell the story? Well, this, this is a concert that took place in 1939. Uh, for, for, for many years, uh, Howard University, Black University in Washington, D.C., had a wonderful concert series and asked, uh, and Anderson was invited to appear on that concert series. In 1939, she was famous enough because she had been uh, managed by then for four or five years by Sal Hurok 
She was extraordinarily well known in the country and the only hall large enough in, in the city of Washington was Constitution Hall. Uh, the places that she had sung before were simply not big enough. DR was approached and Fred Hand, the manager of Constitution Hall, said no. There's a concert that day and besides, you know about the white artist only clause. Of course they knew about it. But they didn't back down. Gradually a coalition formed in the city of Washington. Howard University officials, legal advisors to the NAACP, concerned citizens, took up the cause. Wrote letters of protest. Sally Roberts was the president general of the DAR, but she didn't back down. I want to read you something that's in your book where the, you quote the United Mine Workers writing about the <laughs> DAR. Um, and they, in their newsletter, described the DAR, everyone knows that the DAR is an aristocratic, high-hat institution whose members parade around like peafowls in silks and sealskins and imagine themselves as the elect of the human race. Well, <laughs> yes. I'm sure many people thought that. The, the, the DAR had done a lot of good, but in those years they were not terribly liberal-minded. Um, and that, that coalition continued to work. Um, finally, they had to give up the idea of Constitution Hall, and uh, the, um, the, um, it was taken next to the Washington School Board. Another possibility for Mary Anderson to give a concert in the city of Washington in an auditorium that was big enough was the auditorium of the White Central High School. That required permission from the Board of Education. That had to be applied for, too. Another round of petitions. Uh, the Washington School Board said no. A lot more demonstrations. They said this was now going on for more than a month. The concert was not, only, not much more than a month away. Uh, and then, of course, the in many ways pivotal event, the event that changed from this controversy from a local one to a national one, was the resignation of Eleanor Roosevelt from the DAR, which she wrote about in her My Day column. That changed the complexion of that controversy to an extraordinary degree. You have a picture here of Eleanor Roosevelt with Marian Anderson. And Eleanor Roosevelt got involved in the situation. Eleanor Roosevelt got in, 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 uh, involved in the situation at the beginning as a kind of counselor to NAACP officials, Walter White, for example, the secretary on the NAACP, with whom she was friends. But she has gotten, for all of her extraordinary work on behalf of blacks, uh, she's gotten too much credit for the Lincoln Memorial Concert. She was not instrumental no. in arranging for that concert. She was behind it, but I think that indirectly she had something to do with the start. She certainly lent her voice in a rather public way when she resigned from the DAR. But the actual work that was done in order to, for, for, uh, at the start, to put these several ideas together, that, that there would be an outdoor concert at the Lincoln Memorial, and the work that went into convincing the various parties who had to be convinced, that was a coalition that was known as the Marion Anderson Citizens Committee that was formed around this time to protest. It was, a, it was a committee of protest, and it involved people like Walter White, the secretary of NAACP, Charles Houston, who had been the dean of the Howard Law School, but was then legal advisor to the NAACP, Howard University officials. They were the ones responsible. Walter White particularly was responsible. If you want to 
talk, and historians like to say, like to ask, who was the person who thought of this idea? Ideas don't always get thought that way by one person at one time. But if you have to think about, if you have to give credit to somebody who was perhaps more than anyone else responsible for making the idea and the concert at the Lincoln Memorial possible, it was certainly Walter White. And also Harold Ickes played Harold a role. Harold Ickes, in. yes. And he was what a wonderful record. The, the father of the Harold Ickes, yes. who was the advisor That's to President right. Clinton. Yes. And, and Harold Ickes shows up in the musical Annie. Yes. That's right. Who was he? Harold Ickes was Secretary of the Interior under President Roosevelt. Very so, sympathetic to the needs of blacks. So very he had behind oversight the over the memorials, the monuments. Yes, and the, uh, the Washington Monument was under the, was under the uh, care of the uh, Department of the Interior. Fortunately, he liked the idea tremendously. Uh, brought it to President Roosevelt, who said, yes, absolutely. So the concert took place? The, the concert took place outdoors on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, April 9th, Easter Sunday. 75,000 people came. Was there a sound system? Yes, it was recorded. It was, it, was, it, was, it was recorded, it was broadcast on the radio, and it was filmed. Or at least parts of it were filmed, and the film actually exists in the National Archives. Have you seen it? Yes. Is the recording available to purchase? The recording, if I'm not mistaken, can be gotten by anyone who writes to the National Archives in Washington and asks for it. I think it's in the public domain. Now, don't quote, but I think that's true. It's not, it was not all filmed. About 12 minutes of a 35 minutes were filmed. You see Icky's speech. You see the huge throngs went all the way to the base of the Washington Monument. You hear Marian Anderson singing um, America, um, several spirituals, an aria. It was a half-hour program. Uh, it was not all filmed, but about almost half of it was filmed and all recorded. What did she sing besides America the Beautiful? She sang Schubert Ave Maria, several spirituals, and an aria from Donizetti opera La Favorita. Oh, Mio Fernando, which was in many ways one of her pieces. It was, an aria, it was the aria that she sang in that Lewison Stadium concert that I told you about. It made such an impression on the people who heard her there. It's a long aria, very difficult, with a big cadenza, a long trill. It really showed off her technique to an extraordinary degree. Borghetti said when he said, when, when Borghetti told her about now, when you, about the concert, it, about the Lewison Stadium competition, he said, now Marion, don't stop when the buzzer goes off, when you're supposed to. You keep singing until you get to the trill. <laughs> what was the, the reaction to the concert in the media? Oh, it was extraordinary. But it was an event. It, of course, it made Marion Anderson popular in a way that had never been the case before. It made her a national celebrity of a kind that she had never dreamed of. How famous was she? Before or after the concert, because things changed rather drastically after. Before, she was a very famous American singer. She had been managed by Sal Hirox since 1935. He was a very creative and imaginative uh, um, manager who was devoted to making Marian Anderson's career in this country successful uh, in a way that Arthur, jo Arthur Judson, I don't think, was either capable or really anxious to do. And in the four years since the beginning of that management, she had become very famous indeed. I mean, in 1938, he bragged to the press that she had made 
oh, an enormous amount of money that year, $200,000. She was very famous by 1939, but not as she was after that concert, which of course changed her life permanently. Before that, she was a black singer who had achieved an enormous success, an unparalleled success for her race. After the Lincoln Memorial concert, she was a symbol, a role model, an inspiration of a kind that had not been the case before. But of course, if you see the audience, I mean, there are some close-up shots. It was not completely black, but it, was seemed, it seemed to me predominantly black, at least at the very front. You can see the impact of what that concert meant to them. And Walter White, who wrote about what he saw at that concert, is very moving, the effect that it had on people of her race. How did she take to the role of being a symbol? Not, not well. Not easily. Um, as she liked to say, she was not made for hand-to-hand -hand combat. It was an enormous burden to her. Um, she felt unequal to it, inadequate. Not of her, it was not of her own making. It made her insecure. Um, but nonetheless, she felt at the same time that it was an obligation. That if she was called upon to act in that way, than she was going to. And it continued, of course, relentlessly for the rest of her career. Historic trip that was um, sponsored by the State Department as a goodwill ambassador as well as singer that she made to 12 or 13 countries in the Far East in 1957 as a, as a delegate to the United Nations. Most people don't know that she served as part of the United States, 13, not the United States delegation. President Eisenhower, President Eisenhower appointed her as alternate delegate to the United Nations in 1958. I think it was the 13th. Um, um, was it just an know? honorary thing? No, it wasn't honorary. No, it, it wasn't honorary. She was a member of the trusteeship council. She was not. Uh, she was not asked to do that to make policy. She was asked to be a spokesman for the United States position. Um, but nonetheless, she served uh, in the fall of 1958 as delegate. She had an office. She was given an office in New York near the United Nations. Um, she was expected to make friends with the delegates from African countries. It was her personality, her warmth, her dignity. Did she enjoy Everything that? Everything she had come to, make, to mean um, that the United States hoped to capitalize on. Did she enjoy that? I think she found it a challenge. I think she felt that she, it was an enormous amount for her to learn and to understand. She took it very seriously. She stopped, she canceled all of her... Um, engagements as a singer, uh, all of her constant engagements for that period in order to serve. I think in the end she felt that she had done some good. She also sang at the Eisenhower, second Eisenhower and the Kennedy inaugural. Yes, both. What'd she sing? My, my country, um, the national anthem. I don't think more. They're, they aren't filmed, but I don't remember. What was her last concert? The very last time she sang, I believe, was in 1965 or 66, at the very end. It was after her farewell tour. She made some appearances after her final concert tour. 
1964-65. And this concert, I think, was with her nephew, Jimmy, who by then was rather prominent already as a conductor. She performed with him um, as a soloist in a concert. That was the last time she sang. But she went on to appear in public, not in a singing role, but in a narrating role in a piece by Aaron Copland, uh, Lincoln Portrait, which is a work for orchestra and narrator. Um, it's a very popular piece, especially during the summer, fest summer festivals, festivals devoted to American music. It has a wonderful speaking part for narrator, which, she's, which he narrated with extraordinary conviction. Uh, and she did that until she was nearly 80 years old. <laughs> After she retired, did she ever sing just for her own enjoyment? Yes. Apparently, she, she could be coaxed. One thing that she did not do was listen to her own recordings. You could hard, from what I understand, you could not get her to hear her own recordings. Hmm. She didn't like them. She was, she was unhappy with them. Um, um, but she would sing in the right mood on an informal occasion. Someone who had played for her as an accompanist at the very end of her career, John Motley, who was a choral conductor in New York, apparently could get her to sing if anybody could by sitting down at the piano, uh, playing a piece that she, he knew Marion liked. And before she, perhaps she realized it, she was singing along. And she died at age 96? She died at the age of 96. And her funeral was in Philadelphia? There were memorial services in Union Baptist Church in Philadelphia and then at Carnegie Hall. Where is she buried? Her ashes are buried in her, uh, are in her mother's grave in Eden Cemetery in Philadelphia, which is what she wanted. It, once you had done all the research and you were writing this book, was there anything you really wish you could have asked her? Oh, yes, there are countless things. Because, you know, she died at the very start. And at the very start, you never know what to ask people you interview. You don't know enough. Um, that's why you have 10 or 15 or 20 interviews. I would have loved to talk to her about the Lincoln Memorial Concert. I think I could have gotten her to talk to me about it after she had known me more. Uh, countless things I would have liked to talk about. It was only the very big start. I mean, um, I mean my, my questions to her were only a beginning that never had a continuation. This is the cover of the book, Marian Anderson, A Singer's Journey. Alan Kyler, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.